Dr. Ben Maratapu is the co-founder and CEO of Seracare, a technology-enabled home care company which has raised over $90 million in funding. I could speak about Ben's achievements for hours, but to give you a whistle-stop tour, he's a successful doctorpreneur, has published some very influential writing, and has worked in health policy. Perhaps most notably, he was advisor to Simon Stevens, the CEO of NHS England, for three years. Ben was awarded an MBE for services to health and care technology in the 2020 Queen's New Year Honours list. We talk about how Ben got to where he is, along with what he learned at every step. We also dive quite deep into what it's actually like to be CEO of such a large company. This is one of my favourite interviews because Ben is incredibly candid and gives loads of useful advice. I hope you enjoy. Could you tell me a little bit about your story, maybe starting from medical school to how you got to where you are today? Of course. And look, thanks for uh, having me here. It's always great to uh, talk about life as a medical student, the amazing opportunities that that provides, but also the up and down journey uh, that comes with it. Um, I actually, when I was a teenager, I didn't necessarily want to go into medicine. Um, I was more interested in business when I was a teenager, but I did uh, a piece of work experience uh, at Ealing Hospital on a cardiology ward with a really passionate uh, F1 doctor. And he showed me how what we're learning in the classroom was really applicable in real life, but also the amazing impact you could have on a doctor with someone who, let's say, had a heart attack, um, just giving them some relatively common medications could allow them to to live, uh, could allow them to have a very independent, quite healthy life from that point onwards and radically improve their life expectancy compared to what otherwise would be possible. And it was just amazing to have my eyes open to that. Uh, I then um, applied to medical school, um, went to uh, undergrad, and I think got quite caught up in the books. Um, So all of the science behind uh, medicine, everything from kind of biochemistry to pharmacology to anatomy. And I really enjoyed that. I loved actually the opportunity to understand how different parts of the body work and how on the frontiers of science, you can be quite creative. You can see how different parts of the body work, but you can then come up with ideas for areas that we don't necessarily understand yet, but suggest almost hypotheses of what could be possible and how different parts of cells and the biochemistry behind them, different parts of physiology that we aren't sure about, how they could actually piece together. Um, At the same time, when I was at medical school, I became very involved with different societies, um, working with charities, uh, eventually running them that supported students to visit older people and people who are housebound uh, so that they could have greater companionship and greater links to the community to organizing events that uh, funded students in countries such as Malawi through their training who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. Uh, And that gave me a real insight and exposure to having a more managerial role in healthcare and the, the impact that a person can have through working in teams and guiding or leading those teams to have uh, a broader effect on people's lives because I think sometimes in medicine uh, it can you can become very focused on the opportunity ahead of you which is of course clinical practice uh, and serving in clinic or another setting and looking after the patient in front of you but there are so many other opportunities and avenues that a medical student can pursue be it 
academic research where what you find can have an impact on many, many people, all the way to working in charities, organizations, and nonprofits, all the way to having a more innovative or technology-driven view of the healthcare world and being involved in startups. And that breadth is something that I really am passionate about in healthcare because I think it is possible to thread some of those opportunities together and to have a really exciting, compelling, but also profoundly uh, impactful role in healthcare. And um, I th- yeah, my we can go into this in more detail, but my time in medical school definitely had uh, lots of twists and turns. Uh, and I probably went into it thinking I would be um, maybe become a surgeon uh, and I left it in a d- very different position. So going to Oxfordshire Medical School, as you kind of mentioned, um, it sounds very academically rigorous. Does that leave a lot of time to think about this other stuff? Yeah, I think um, it, it still does. And I think in every medical school, the course and how it's structured might vary. But the core of understanding uh, the human body, understanding some of the science behind it, and then, of course, uh, spending time with clinical teams, with um, other people in a hospital or community setting, and, of course, looking after patients and addressing some of their needs, that those form the key building blocks of any uh, medical degree and a medical course. But then I think it's what happens on the sidelines and the frontiers, which is what potentially can be most exciting. Uh, So absolutely, you may be studying. uh, uh, So I did my undergrad at Cambridge and there, yes, it was quite academic in its focus, particularly in the first couple of years. Um, But I still had the chance to meet students from other backgrounds who were studying other courses, had an opportunity to get involved with different societies, had a chance to try and get involved with some research. And that already started to get the creative juices flowing and had me exploring avenues of healthcare and medicine, which before going to medical school, I never really thought about. What's the most useful thing you did at medical school for your career now? (laughs) I think it's hard to pinpoint it. I think as a general principle, I tried lots of things and I also failed in a lot of different ways. But those difficulties and the experiences that didn't work out were the ones I learned from the most in which looking back now were perhaps the best learning experiences. I think when I I did study abroad for a year uh, in the US on the East Coast, and when I was there, I did become involved with a research project. I was working day and night on comparing health systems from Europe to the US, because at that point, Obamacare was being rolled out. And a key policy question was whether some of the uh, insurance changes to Obamacare, where everyone or a much greater proportion of the population had to get insurance, uh, whether that was the right way to go or not. And looking at other models of healthcare and health insurance systems, such as Switzerland and Germany, provided a lot of insights where universal coverage or approaching universal health coverage, which is what we have in the UK, is a, a clear manner to improve the health of a population, to reduce inequalities, and overall is... Um, economically a very justifiable way forward. Um, but we spent a long time analyzing different health systems to to see and provide direction as to where the US health system could go. Uh, but ultimately, that piece of work actually didn't even get published. We originally aimed to try and get it published in a top journal like the New England Journal of Medicine uh, or JAMA. Um, and I was working with a 
Harvard Business School professor and also someone who was formerly formerly ran the Swiss health system. Unfortunately, he didn't get published in those two top journals. And then after that, because priorities moved, the political climate changed. It wasn't as timely a piece of research as we had hoped. And so we moved on to the next research item. But um, through the collaborations, uh, relationships and partnerships I formed with those uh, with the senior researchers on that team and with the actually the Swiss-based professor who, um, yes, led the Swiss health system, but also was vice chair of the WHO early on in his career. Um, he then gave me other opportunities, uh, having seen my commitment and I think my commitment to learn despite sometimes making mistakes. Uh, he then supported me getting other roles with the WHO and elsewhere and with the Swiss government. Um, which I learned a tremendous amount from and served as key st uh, stepping stones in my, in my career to date. And I think that's an example of where you build collaborations and relationships with people that last well beyond medical school. And while in a specific project may not work out uh, over a couple of month period, it's actually thinking about the long term that counts and that ultimately pays off because the collaborations that I then um, forged with him with the WHO and Swiss government only came about when I was a doctor. So after I left medical school, even though a lot of the effort and commitment and hard work went in uh, years before that. So you never know where things are going to land, but I think forming a, a, a robust network, um, demonstrating to people that you are committed, that you are using the right values, uh, that you do work hard and you try to learn fast, and um, that uh, can be invaluable, um, even if the, the project in the short term doesn't work out. Sometimes I feel like if I'm working on a project and that project fails, I feel like, oh man, this was a dud. Um, I feel like I've not done well here. I've burnt a few bridges and I just move on. So what was it in particular about that project that meant that later on that actually worked out to be an asset for you rather than this kind of burnt bridge? Even if a project doesn't work out, um, it's actually how a person goes through challenge and adversity that shows some of their true colors. If you're persistent, if you don't give up, if you keep trying to look for new solutions to problems or explore other opportunities, it shows that you've got a can-do attitude uh, and that uh, you're resilient, both of which are key characteristics, I think, to succeed and make waves in, in any sector or any career path, but especially in healthcare where Sometimes if you're trying to innovate or be a pioneer, uh, it involves going against the grain. It involves a lot of resilience, a lot of hard work, and showing those qualities to the people who are working with you who may have access to many other opportunities, even though you're working on this specific project, uh, that, can be, uh, that can be really important. And that can actually be the most important takeaway that a person takes from a given project. And so, yeah, if a project is a dud, sometimes that's okay. Because if you prove yourself, and you demonstrate um, positive characteristics which show that you can be an effective partner and an effective contributor to other projects, uh, those people will come back to you when they have a, an opportunity or another project that they think you're right for. And that's what's really important. I think even if a project doesn't succeed, um, ensuring that you've still got a collaborative relationship with the people that you were working with uh, and one that's still fit for the future that's what I think the priority should be. And in medical school, again, you're at the beginning of your entire career. Some of these collaborations, these relationships last an entire lifetime. I'm still have 
projects actually, research projects with the F1 I did work experience with when I was 16. So it's been a, a decade and a half since uh, and we're still working together. And that's uh, for me a, a real example of a long-term, very fruitful collaboration where we work together on projects spanning charities, uh, non-profit organizations to research projects and quality improvement projects and a lot of publications as well. And that relationship, that collaboration has borne born, uh, great and great amounts of fruit. And I think uh, investing for the long term when you're at the beginning of your career as a medical student uh, is really important. Sometimes it can be very easy to be caught up with the short term goals, especially given that you've got exams at every corner, uh, maybe there are job applications for foundation uh, jobs just a few months or a year away and you want to tick off the relevant boxes for it. But I would still say, remember, healthcare is kind of a lifelong contribution and working as a doctor or as a medic um, is a multi-decade um, career path. So at the beginning of your career, really try and sow the seeds that set you up as well as possible for long-term success and a great future ahead. Sometimes you meet someone and you click with them straight away and it's it's easy to imagine how you'll still be in touch a decade and a half down the line. Um, but that's not the case with everyone, obviously, or maybe even most people. So do you have do you have any specific ways in which you stay in touch with people and keep that kind of relationship and that network formed? Of course. And just like with friends, you're not going to get on with everyone and not everyone is going to be uh, someone you get on with for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Um, but I think there are going to be some collaborators you come across who, where things click and you think, okay, wow, you know, this person's a great inspiration to me. I think there's an amazing amount that I could learn from them, but also I believe I could contribute to some of their projects and their opportunities. And that's kind of a win-win scenario. Um, and those collaborations are ones that you want to nurture. And those are relationships where you do want to catch up with that individual on a regular basis where possible tell them on how things and update them on how things are going with your time at medical school while seeing if they've got any other projects for you to work on and continue uh, working together on different uh, specific opportunities as they emerge. And of course, at the same time, there will be collaborations that don't necessarily work out and actually they can be quite difficult to salvage. But it's, it's always possible to have a coffee with someone and have a positive catch up even if a project hasn't worked out so both people leave that collaboration thinking warmly and positively about what happened uh, even if the outcome wasn't the desired one and i think um again at the beginning of your career it's important to um to be collaborative to work with as many people as you can and to keep people on side so getting back a little bit to your story can you take me through the next chapter? So you finished medical school. What what happened next? Yeah, I mean, but just before that, so I was studying in the US and there actually um, the person who was my neighbor uh, was working for a VC fund uh, that uh, focused on health tech investments. This is back in 2011-12. And so he got me to start advising them on their um, on their the different deals they were looking at and different companies that they wanted to to back. And that gave me a great insight into the power innovation technology has to revolutionize healthcare. This was at a time where companies like Airbnb, Uber, um, were, Facebook were all really taking off. And it was uh, amazing to see how they were changing the world on an almost monthly basis. And I thought, what if 
technologies like that could have a similar impact on healthcare. I mean, that could have uh, such a revolutionary impact on people's lives, on the way we do healthcare, on the way we practice medicine. And then at the same time, at a very specific detailed level, I was supporting uh, my friend at the time, uh, and still now, actually, that's another long-term collaboration, but my friend then, um, on uh, the different deals that he was looking at, the different health technology investments he was thinking of making, and seeing on a very granular basis how these companies were trying to uh, transform, pioneer, innovate very specific parts of healthcare. And then when I came back to the UK, I was really passionate and actually dead set on using innovation in healthcare to, for the better of health system patients, uh, healthcare professionals, providers, uh, and other key stakeholders. And then quite serendipitously, uh, after practicing as a doctor, being involved in different innovation projects uh, and taking on different research opportunities as well, I then started to work with Simon Stevens, who's the CEO of the health service, uh, and advising him on innovation technology, how the NHS could better embrace new technologies ranging from digital products and apps through to data algorithms, through to devices uh, for, for better. Because of course, uh, and this is still the case, the NHS is under tremendous pressure. Demand for healthcare services is only increasing as we've got an aging population, more long-term conditions. And yet the funds we have available to healthcare remain quite limited. So how can we do more with less? That's only really possible through doing things differently. And that's where I believe innovation fits in. And technology is more affordable than it ha has been ever before. People can you know, be at home on their laptops and cook up an app that actually can help someone with their diabetes management or with their CBT treatment. Uh, it's amazing how democratized healthcare has become by virtue of the internet, digital, uh, and data. And I think I thought there was a real opportunity for the NHS to become an ecosystem that allowed entrepreneurs and innovators to thrive and to build these new solutions that change the face of medicine. And that was what I worked on at NHS England. Um, I co-founded a number of programs there, such as the NHS Innovation Accelerator, in general, trying to support entrepreneurs in scaling their innovations and their solutions across the NHS to benefit patients, but also to reduce costs. Um, and after that, I uh, trained in public health, got my membership, um, and saw an opportunity really in elderly care, uh, as I'd supported many, many different technology startups, companies, uh, organizations in working with the NHS. Uh, from small ones to kind of multinational ones. And I thought, actually, a lot of these solutions focus on younger or middle-aged people, but they aren't really focusing on older people with multiple health conditions who represent the majority of the disease pressure on the NHS, who represent the majority of costs for any given health system. Uh, and yet the amount of digital intervention has been minimal. Um, and that struck me as a bit of a mismatch. And then at the same time, when I was working uh, on the front line, I could see patients ping-ponging in and out of hospitals who are uh, older people um, because they kept getting recurrent urine or chest infections or they had falls at home or in care homes. And these were issues that in many cases could have been prevented if they received better support in the community. And if they were prevented, that older person um, could have been better looked after, they could have better health outcomes, but also the NHS and hospitals uh, could have saved certain amount of funds, 
um, and pressures on the front line could have been alleviated. Putting this together, I thought actually the area that I wanted to focus on and where I saw the most opportunity to make an impact was elderly care. <clears throat> and so I um, co-founded at that point a company called Sarah, which is what I run now. Um, and there we wanted to use technology to bring a new model of home care where we organize for carers to look after older people in their own homes, keep them well and healthy there, and ideally increase the amount of care they needed in the home so that health deteriorations could be prevented, so that hospitalizations could be prevented, and drive that through technology. And uh, we launched Sarah three and a half years ago, and we've grown incredibly quickly. So now we have over two and a half thousand employees. We've got about 23 offices across the country. Uh, we're in England, Wales. We're about to expand to Scotland. Um, we've taken on about $90 million of uh, investment from uh, partner capital partners across the world. Um, and we're one of the largest health technology companies in the UK and Europe uh, by employees and revenues. So it's been that itself has been a roller coaster journey. And it's great also that we've been able to step up and support quite significantly in the effort against COVID-19. Um, and, you know, even today, I'm very happy to say that we've delivered over 1.2 million care sessions during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, but haven't had any COVID-19 deaths under our care, uh, even though we're mainly looking after older people. And of course, deaths amongst older people, particularly in care homes, has been a real issue in the UK. So it's been great that through the power of technology, Sarah has been able to provide a higher quality service and really serve the, the older people under our care. I want to get into Sarah, uh, but first I want to backtrack way back and find out how exactly you became advisor to Simon Stevens. Yeah, I mean, so Simon and I actually, um, we hadn't met before, but we had had a, a phone call when I um, was in late stages of medical school. I kind of cold emailed him um, when he was working in the US saying that it'd be great to kind of get some advice from him and was quite persistent and nagged him a lot. And then eventually... Um, a, a couple of opportunities came up to work with him as he started his new role in the NHS and I applied and I, I was, I think, pretty lucky and fortunate to, uh, to, to get that job as a senior fellow to him and advise him in the very early days in his tenure as CEO on building first a five-year roadmap and plan for the NHS, the five-year forward view. I mean, I was there from the very first meeting we had on that to identifying the different work streams we wanted to focus on, the different uh, conditions such as cancer, mental health, diabetes, uh, that we thought were real priorities for the country, um, all the way to leading the innovation, research and technology parts of the five-year forward view and outlining the steps that we thought would be important to take um, so that the NHS could become this ecosystem that supported innovators in spreading their solutions for the benefit of patients and the benefit of the taxpayer. And then from that, building programs with Simon, learning from him as a leader, um, identifying challenges that people on the front line were facing, but of course, patients were experiencing as well and trying to solve those using technology. Um, it was amazing to go through that. But also, yeah, I mean, it was being thrown in the deep end. I just finished F1. I'd never spent a day in policy or politics. I didn't really know much about management or large organizations. And um, I had to learn the hard way in, in many respects. So I'm curious about this 
because you've gone from someone who was cold emailing people and being persistent to someone who probably gets cold emailed a lot now yourself. So what's your, what are your best tips for getting in touch with someone who's way above your, way above your grade? I think, um, so everyone, we all had to start somewhere and most people in healthcare were definitely medical students, junior doctors, management trainees, uh, student nurses at one point. And so they all really empathize with individuals who are ambitious, keen to learn, committed to improving the health system um, and understand that they may want to learn more uh, and also may want to uh, hear advice, tips, guidance from people who've uh, had, you know, they've made mistakes themselves, they've gone through ups and downs and they may have lessons to share others so that they may not have to go through that themselves. And I think when you email someone or when you cold call someone, so to speak, um, it's really, I think what's important is conveying a sense of passion and motivation, why it is you're reaching out to them, but why it is healthcare or medicine is something that you really enjoy. That sense of purpose, that sense of drive is, is key to get across. And then of course, um, if there are things that you've done in the past which reflect some of your commitments to the health space, uh, communicating them. And what I would also add, um, if, if you've got a specific question or a couple of questions, outlining them in that communication, saying, I'd really like to pick your brain about this or that, or, or um, if you've got uh, any time at all to get your advice on, on this question, or I'm at this point in my career and I'm thinking through what to do next. I'd really appreciate your advice. I know we haven't really spoken before. I think those are, it's helpful to articulate that in your communication so the person understands your motivations. They, are, they can see that you're really serious about it and they can see also what question you want answered and how they can be most helpful. That can be quite compelling when you're writing to, to someone. And then, um, also, it helps sometimes if you bump into them in person. I mean, if they're conferences um, and, uh, or if they're speaking somewhere and then if you go up to them at the end of that event, if there's someone who can introduce you to that individual, uh, there are lots of other ways where you can have a slightly more personal introduction or meeting with that individual and in turn outline your case as to why you want to get advice from them. Um, but be persistent as well. Sometimes it definitely takes you know, quite a few phone calls or, or emails or chasing to be able to reach out to that individual, but almost always it's worth it. Can you explain to me as a medic who has never touched policy, can you explain something, explain policy to me, explain to me what I wouldn't understand until I did it myself? I think as medics, we obviously understand the, the academic background towards medicine. We understand the interactions with patients and the communication skills that are really important to develop to support patients through their, through their journey in a health system. I think areas where we can learn more are firstly, how we work in teams. Um, if you think about people who work in uh, large uh, companies uh, or corporations who work in consulting firms, or even people who are playing for sports teams, there's a lot of emphasis that goes into how they work as a team and how they collaborate. And studies have shown that when uh, doctors and clinicians are given team training, that can dramatically improve the outcomes for patients that they're looking after, particularly in surgery. I think one of the key gaps 
um, or areas where we could do more is understanding how to work in teams. And I say that because when you jump into policy, you're having to liaise and collaborate with many, many people across a very large organization, um, which isn't something that medics necessarily will be familiar with, given that we're more used to working in smaller teams, which may be multidisciplinary, but classically smaller teams on a given ward or in a GP practice or in a similar setting. And that team training element is one that's really important to understand. And that in turn will link to understanding the importance of culture, the importance of leadership, how to become an effective leader of a larger organization. Those are themes which allow a person to believe to be more effective in policy, I think, and to understand where stakeholders are coming from and help to align them, get them on the same page so that they can support a policy change. I think the other part of being a medic where we can grow further compared to where training is at the moment, particularly during medical school, is understanding the health of populations. Um, we've seen during COVID how there is a massive population health impact where we need to introduce behavioral change, uh, social distancing, even lockdown measures to improve the health of individuals and populations at the same time. Even with uh, smoking, obesity, um, it, with lifestyle related conditions, it's clear what the impact of population health has. At a policy level, understanding the needs of a population, how those can be improved and addressed, and what some of the tools are for improving a population's health, be it in hospitals, in communities, or supporting people in managing their own lifestyles so that they can be healthy on a day-to-day -day basis, that's really important. And so jumping in from a frontline role to working in policy, I think the two areas that I had to grow up in the most quickly were understanding how to work with st stakeholders with larger teams and larger organizations and also appreciating the health of populations what some of the drivers are there and what levers we can pull to help people live more healthily and to transform a health system rather than necessarily specifically the person in front of me the patient or the ward that i'm working on i want to pick up on two points you mentioned so first um you mentioned at the end about thinking in systems a little bit more and uh, rather than looking at the patient in front of you thinking about the greater system what are the differences between the two approaches so looking at the patient just the patient in front of you and how does the system differ to that the patient in front of you involves understanding their symptoms their history running respective diagnostic tests um, communicating to them effectively working a management plan out with them and then supporting them over a period of time at a system level, yes, you're thinking about the individual patient, but you're also considering items such as health inequalities, different demographics, different parts of the system. So how does primary care and GP practices, how do they work with hospitals and specialist services? How do hospitals collaborate effectively with social care and care providers? How can we encourage all these organizations to work more effectively to drive improvements in patient care? Because sometimes, the person on the front line might think that what they're doing is most appropriate, but actually when taking a step back and looking at the whole picture, what they're doing may not be congruent or in synchrony with where we want to take healthcare in general. Um, it, and technology is a great example of that. Uh, when trying to roll out a new technology where we're ironing out the wrinkles, uh, there are parts of the product that need to be better developed. There are parts of the user experience journey that haven't been figured out yet. 
rolling a technology like that out on day one may not be beneficial for the patient because the patient has to get used to it, the clinician has to get used to it. They've got to take time out of their day to understand the technology when they otherwise could be seeing patients. But across a three, six, or 12-month horizon, that technology overall is better for that patient, but also is better for the population because let's say the doctor is able to track the symptoms of multiple patients at the same time, which means their time is better utilized, they can be more proactive in providing patient care, and that as a result, the population that they're looking after benefits, even though, if the, even though the individual who received care at the beginning may not have benefited as significantly as the population. And those are examples where there are trade-offs between the individual and the system, and it's important to understand both so that those trade-offs can be made most effectively. Even more recently, we, we've had very difficult discussions around COVID-19 at a national level with regard to even herd immunity. At the beginning, there was a lot of confusion uh, and a lot of decision-making around, actually, should people become more infected with COVID-19? Because even though more individuals may be affected, if we reach herd immunity for the population, that's beneficial. Uh, and of course, eventually the decision was made to go into lockdown, and arguably we could have gone into lockdown even sooner. But it's some of those trade-offs, it's some of that difficult decision-making and the complexity, which is important to understand, appreciate, and to move on sometimes quite quickly at a national or regional level, which otherwise it could be difficult if you're only focusing on the individual. The second point I want to pick up from what you've said um, you mentioned working in larger teams, and I want to link this to your work now leading uh, Sarah. So I, I'm sure you would have heard of this, but Dunbar's number says that something like the most connections a human can make with other humans is about 150. And Sarah's exploded now, and you said you've got two and a half thousand employees. So what have you had to learn from managing such a large organization? Uh, and how does it differ from the early days when presumably you just had 10 or 20 people? Yeah, it's it's been a really steep learning curve, uh, absolutely. And this is my first startup, my first business, which has made the learning curve even steeper. Um, I think at the beginning, it was myself and our co-founders, and we were doing everything between us. It could be calling the carer, meeting them, seeing the person we were looking after, the older person, um, manually organizing shifts, uh, meeting investors to try and raise funds, uh, doing spell check on the website and working out what the content should be, typing that up from scratch, even negotiating the office contract and figuring out where we're going to be for the next few months um, and which co-working space. I and uh, my co-founders, we were doing everything, right? And everything between us. But then as we grew, um, our roles changed. They became more strategic. It's then about setting the direction for the organization, outlining the strategy. Hiring is extremely important because every single person you bring to your organization affects the organization's DNA. And they are now representative. And if it's a small company, every single person makes such a big difference. So getting hiring right, right is extremely, extremely important. Um, working out the right structure of the company, budgeting, the allocation of resource and funds, that becomes much more of the priority um, and managing kind of the core team around you uh, by having regular catch-ups, team meetings, and so on. And then as the company reaches its next stage of scale where you go from tens of employees to hundreds or even thousands, 
then I mean, it's, it's, it's impossible for me uh, as a CEO to be everywhere at the same time. Uh, it's not like before where I could meet every single person we hired and I can be in every single interview and I can be in the majority of the meetings and provide strategic direction to everyone. And then it becomes much more about achieving scale. And I think scale in organizations can be achieved probably in three main ways. One is setting the culture. Two is by having clear processes and protocols. And three is technology. And so that's where a lot of my effort goes into. And for me personally, as CEO, it mainly goes into the first one, which is setting the culture. Because if the organization has the right culture, it has the right values, then people will know what the North Star is. They'll be able to make decisions themselves on a day-to-day -day basis without me being there to have to necessarily give them guidance. Of course, if there's a complex decision, uh, I'll be involved. If my immediate team or the people who I manage directly need support, of course, I'll be there for them. But in other parts of the organization or across uh, 20 plus different offices, if people know what the, the compass is and what the North Star is, they can make those decisions on a day-to-day -day basis much more effectively in a much more scalable way, where I myself am not slowing down the organization, but I'm enabling it. And so a huge amount of focus goes into building a culture, ensuring people are aligned, setting the right leadership tone, the right cadence for the organization, uh, and empowering people so that they feel safe and that they feel comfortable in innovating, in taking risks, but also in delivering great care and striking that balance where possible. Then when it comes to processes and technology, that's where having the right people, having the right expertise really comes in. Um, so building processes which blends, in our case, traditional best practice processes from the care sector combined with best practice product development, data science efforts, technology uh, building, blending those types of processes so that people have protocols, they know what to do depending on what situation they're in, they know what the sign-up process is if they need additional budget, if they want to hire a new team or build a new business unit. Creating those processes allows, again, the, the organization to be much more scalable in making rapid decisions. And then thirdly, of course, technology. And we are honing and developing our technology every single day. We're releasing new features every week. Uh, and that technology is instrumental in allowing Sarah to scale effectively and scale fast. Uh, and those are the three areas that I really focus on. But the biggest one is around culture and setting the right tone for the organization. And that's been that has been a massive learning curve because even before, when I was working in policy, I was not responsible for setting the culture or the DNA of the organization. I was more of a recipient of it. And then as a, as a frontline doctor and as a medical student, again, that's not something that I really thought about, to be honest. I would complain about the culture sometimes in NHS hospitals, um, but I didn't think about how I could make it better or what my role necessarily was in it. And I was much more focused on, okay, I've got this OSCE in a few weeks' time, I've got to prepare for it. Um, or I've got this audit that I'm interested in. But now at Sarah, if you really want to build an organization and an entire ecosystem that scales, that innovates, that almost runs itself, having a great culture is crucial. So culture is quite an abstract concept. So help me break it down. So A, what is the culture you try to achieve at Sarah? And B, how do you set that? Yeah, uh, good questions. Very specific. Um, not so easy answers, I think. So in terms of culture, one is people need to know what the mission is of the company. So to support older people in living longer, better lives in their homes. Everyone needs to understand that that is what we're trying to do. 
it makes decisions, just knowing that mission makes decisions much easier. It means that should we necessarily be expanding into this area which focuses on younger people? Well, our mission is more focused on older people, so that's where we want to be. Should we be buying care homes? Mm, again, we're supporting people in their own homes, so that's what we want to be focusing on. And just that one-line mission helps to center people in terms of what they do, the strategic decisions they make, and also how they're motivated. Because they all know we are transforming the lives of people, thousands of people, every single day. And that is a tremendous motivator for the people who work at Sarah. Then, what are our values? Um, what are the values that we base our decisions on? So being innovative and pioneering, uh, being demonstrating good leadership across the organization, even if you're a carer, being a helpful role model uh, against Sarah's values of being innovative and delivering great care in people's homes, uh, setting that to other carers helps to change their behavior, right? If they've never worked in Sarah before and they see small changes in behavior, in people going that extra mile and delivering care, in people being creative and innovative and thinking about actually, I just came across, across this problem when delivering care to this individual or this part of the app wasn't working, I'm gonna contact the tech team myself and suggest they improve it and fix it rather than saying, I'm just gonna leave it because I can't be bothered to deal with it. I'm gonna go into the next visit and then I'm gonna finish my day and then I'm gonna you know, do whatever in the evening and watch television and start the day tomorrow. That small difference in behavior helps the organization to improve because we're getting immediate feedback from the front line about what's wrong with our product, how we can improve it. We're actioning it, making it higher quality and that translates to a better service, but also better empowering our carers who in turn also will deliver better care. Then outside of that, it's we, I mean, our, our practical examples are, so every two weeks we have a team-wide where every single member of our company and organization dials in to a phone call with the, and a Zoom call with the leadership team, and we answer questions directly from them. And we believe that's really important because it gives people complete access. It allows them to, um, if they have concerns, regardless of which part of the country, and they can raise it to us in a very easy way, in a very relaxed forum. Um, and it also flattens the organization so everyone feels part of the same team and they don't feel talked at, but instead feel part of a family, part of an organization, part of a mission and a movement. Just that small difference of having a fortnightly team-wide across the hundreds and thousands of people that we work with, um, that makes a big difference culturally. Uh, and then in, even in terms of how I'm trying to behave in meetings, how I'm trying to support, encourage, and empower people, uh, when they come to me and they say, I'm not sure what to do, um, this is kind of a problem we're facing, rather than me just giving them the answer, helping them think through how to solve that problem, to be innovative, to think outside of the box, that means that when they go and deal with other people in the company and they liaise with their colleagues or the people in their teams, they might adopt, they're more likely to adopt that approach which will help them to be much more creative and innovative, which is a key value and a key part of working at Sarah and how we're different to other organizations and other care companies. And I think those are hopefully some practical examples and some small examples which magnify across the, the entire organization about how culture, how people behave, how they work with each other can be so important to um, creating a successful organization. And I think Netflix are big on culture. One of the biggest differentiators they say is that they focus exclusively on culture and their strategy is their culture. So when they think about what are we going to do in the next five years, they don't think about 
revenue milestones or product milestones or even new movies they're going to be launching, but they think about what are the milestones we want to do in terms of our culture? What do we want our people to be thinking about, to be focused on? What do we want them to be saying about the organization? That comes first, and then they talk about um, then they talk about what the company itself is going to do. And that focus on people, that focus on supporting people, even if you're a technology-driven company, is so important because fundamentally every company, every organization has people at its core. And the more you can empower them, the more you can encourage them to think innovatively, to think differently, the better. And the way to do that is through culture, through supporting people and working together in a better way. And that's the difference between walking into a hospital or a care home where you've got a manager who is being very kind of top-down, very bossy, very instructive and micromanaging their team and telling them exactly where they want to do. And then, you know, no one wants to work there. No one enjoys that and no one's ever going to be like, oh, I saw, you know, this issue and I think this is a creative way to deal with it. It's never going to happen, right? That's, I think, not where we want to be. We want to be on the other side where people come into work because they love it and they feel that they can be creative and they feel that they're identifying challenges and issues and problems because healthcare is full of those, uh, but they feel that they're comfortable enough and they're giving the right environment and the resources to address those issues. And if they don't know how to address it, they can talk to someone who can help them do that. Are there times, however, so the Netflix point is interesting, but are there times that you have to put people and the culture, you have to drop that in priority and put your mission or specific goals or milestones you have, you have to kind of bring that above that and you have to take the hits on the culture, people's happiness uh, in, in priority for, the, for, the, for those goals? Every organization goes through ups and downs. And I think in the COVID-19 period, unfortunately, many companies have had to let go large numbers of staff. That obviously is not great for culture, right? That's very difficult for an organization to go through. People feel demoralized. People feel that their jobs are at risk. They probably look elsewhere for new roles. Um, productivity goes down. It's a negative cycle. And many, many companies have had to go through that. Even at Sarah, there have been times where we've had to part ways with, our team mem- with some team members or employees. And those have been difficult moments. And there are different reasons behind that. It could be financial it could be that the company is changing shape you know we're going from a company that focuses on one business model to another which means the team itself has to change shape the company is scaling which means the capability it needs at a senior level have evolved have grown and therefore we need leadership team members who can go to that next level who can scale with the company and the organization whenever those changes happen of course that affects culture Uh, of course that affects team morale and it's about I think one of the tests of leadership is leading a team through those difficult times so that they continue to be motivated, they continue to be understanding of what they're working towards. And you get through that moment, you get through those difficult times successfully. And it's similar to, I mean, there are a lot of analogies even with sports, right? There are sports teams that might be 2-0 down or that might be uh, not performing as well as they wanted to or where a key team member or a couple of team members leave the team. the captain, the manager, different team members have to pull together to try and get through that and to try and catch up or make up for lost ground and to still try and succeed. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a difficult season and you can go from one negative to a worse negative. So that's why um, absolutely there are tensions between culture and people versus strategic priorities and strategic needs of a business and an organization. That's where leadership can be tested the most. 
Earlier, you mentioned um, a point about putting suitable processes in place and how that helps with scaling and when your organization gets bigger. And what I wanted to get your thoughts on were Paul Graham's kind of famous essay. Um, I think it's titled something like Do Things That Don't Scale. And I think the kind of main message of that is about occasionally breaking out of that and doing things that wouldn't scale. So maybe for that for you, and I know this is impossible, but it might be every time you get a new team member, you personally meet them, um, which obviously that wouldn't scale and it's probably impossible. Um, but where do you kind of sit on that? Are there times in which you do do things that don't necessarily scale? Of course, yeah. And as a startup where you're moving quickly, you're trying to set up experiments, you're trialing new product features, sometimes you'll do something on a shoestring. You launch a new product, which might be quite glitzy, but actually all it is is someone on the phone line picking up the phone and offering a new service. And then if someone wants that new product, they then pick up the phone to someone else and they order that product and have it delivered to their home. Is that scalable? No way. But again, if you're trying to experiment, you're trying to rapidly prototype, you're trying to see if something works, you will initially do it in a very light touch manner see if people are interested in it and then you can explore how to build it for scale because otherwise you fall into the trap of investing tons of resource energy money into building solutions building teams building products that actually never get used because you've maybe an an it infrastructure has been built that will a million people could use but actually you never tested if a hundred people would be interested in it and then when you do go to market the whole thing falls apart and unfortunately, IT programs, particularly in healthcare, suffer from those challenges. People build products that actually frontline staff or patients don't even want to use. They invest tons of money, and then it unfortunately has gone down the pan because adoption is completely missing out. And there, actually, it help, it's really helpful to not build it for scale, but to see if people are interested, to see if there's a degree of product market fit, and then to level up and do that gradually. And with our technology, we've had to go through multiple evolutions where initially we built it and it was an MVP. It was ready, you know, it was good enough for a few people to use, but it definitely wasn't fit for purpose for hundreds or thousands or more than that. Um, and then we had to build a completely new version. And then again, we had to build a new version. And that happens because there are different phases of scale and growth. And it doesn't always make sense to build for where you're going to be in three or five years time. In your position, I can imagine it's easy to get distracted. So you launch a new product and you start fretting over the font size or something like that. Um, so the question essentially is, how have you managed to keep focused? How do you how do you prioritize things and how do you stop getting distracted? Yeah, one of the difficulty of my difficulties of my role is that on the one hand, I am trying to support people in being creative, but on the other hand, you know, I'm meant to also. Um, more times than not, shoot down ideas and say no. Because I think um, a risk is when you're growing quickly and there are lots of opportunities is that an organization boils the ocean. Uh, and if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. And in those cases, it's that's where discipline comes in. That's where it's really important to say, no, we're not gonna pursue those five really exciting ideas. We're gonna focus on our core. We're gonna focus on getting that right. And once we've achieved that and we've shown it's working and the numbers are improving and people are raving about our, our product, after that, then we'll move on to these really exciting ideas. But for now, we're going to put it on onto the shelf. And even with, um, I mean, if you look at companies like Apple, which are massive, uh, there's a point where Steve Jobs said, 
the iPad as an idea actually came before the iPhone and he saw it as a product concept, but he said, actually, no, this is not the right time for it. Let's put it on the shelf. Let's work on the phone first and then we'll come back to the iPad. And that's what he did. And they were very sequential in the products that they launched, one after the other after the other, iTunes and music, or even before that, they had the iMac when he came back as CEO, then focusing on a, a new kind of laptop system, then on the, the iPhone movement and disrupting the phone. And then, of course, iPad, and they've gone from strength to strength. But even Apple, which is an absolutely massive company, has been disciplined in how they've staged the opportunities that they pursued one by one rather than all of them at once. I've been trying to get to the bottom of this next question, and I hope you excuse the language. Um, I've been asking everyone I sort of admire in the medicine medtech scene. Um, and the question is, do you need to be a dick to be a good leader? <laughs> uh, I, I would absolutely say no. Um, of course, I think to be a good leader in healthcare now, you do need to be disruptive, not a dick, but disruptive. I think you do need to think of new ways of working because the traditional ways of running health systems, uh, even practicing medicine, I mean, they just don't work anymore. Um, that's why during COVID, we've seen this tremendous push towards telemedicine. And I personally think that's here to stay. Um, we're seeing uh, the role of AI and therefore people having to change their roles and what they focus on. Even before, where patients predominantly used to be treated in hospitals, now the area that healthcare in general is moving to in most countries is the home. It's more convenient, it's cheaper, results in better outcomes. Um, many parts of healthcare now are at an inflection point where they are radically changing. And therefore, healthcare leaders have to embrace that change. They have to be willing to rattle the cage to challenge their teams. Um, otherwise, I think some of these organizations, unfortunately, may not be around, definitely not in the same way they are today, in five or 10 years time. We are going through the same shift that retail went through 10 years ago, where it become heavily digitalized. Uh, there are many companies at that point that kind of missed the boat. Even in the early 2000s, I think Walmart looked very closely at Amazon. They missed the boat on that. And now, I mean, look at kind of where those companies are respectively. Things have really changed. Some companies have managed to keep up with the times, but many have not. Uh, if you look at where Motorola is, if you look at where Nokia is, they've been disrupted completely out of the market by uh, smartphone companies such as uh, and products built by smartphone and by Samsung, Apple and others. And that's these are technology oriented companies that have been pushed out, let alone very traditional ones such as Kodak, which I mean, now again, barely exists. Blockbuster movies. I mean, again, they even 10 years ago, they thought Netflix was a joke and would get nowhere. Look at where those respective companies are now. I think healthcare is going through that change at this moment. And in 10 years' time, the players in the health and care space will look very different. And leaders have to be willing to embrace that change. Otherwise, there's a risk that they may get left behind. So I wouldn't say that leaders need to be a dick to be successful. But in this environment, it's important to be disruptive and to embrace disruption, whilst at the same time building a culture that actually embraces that, that is creative, that is innovative, rather than does more of the same and the traditional ways of working that many parts of healthcare become used to over the past decades. What's the best part of your role as a CEO and what's the worst part? 
The best part, I think, is that I can have an idea on a Monday, and by Friday, it's a real thing in the company. That's cool. Uh, that it's great to just say to our product and development teams, or our marketing team, or our operations team. Actually, you know, I had this idea over the weekend. Can we do this? And you know, for some reason, it's time sensitive. So, can we get it done this week? And actually, it happens. And within a matter of days, we've launched kind of a new campaign. We've got a new website. We've got a new piece of technology. All of it's going at full speed. That's awesome. That's great. And um, even in April uh, and at the end of March, we saw what was happening to people as they were losing roles. So within a matter of days, we said, "Okay, let's build a campaign to recruit uh, 10,000 people into Sarah and get them jobs on the front line." And so within literally a matter of days, we launched that campaign in the press. We Did a ton of marketing to get people to apply for jobs in Sarah. We rebuilt our entire recruitment platform so it was automated, digitalized, and could cope with those volumes for scale. Before it was much more uh, light. It wasn't on a shoestring, but it was smaller scale. This was much heavier duty in terms of the volumes, and we were getting hundreds of people apply to work for us every single day. And that that was over a matter of days. It was lightning fast. Everything that happened, and it was awesome to be able to be part of that and to lead it as a CEO. I think the hardest parts are we've gotten to a size where I'm fortunate that Sarah has very kind of competent uh, and experienced leaders across the company, uh, very capable, very versed in what they're doing. But unfortunately, that means that whenever there's a real problem that lands on my desk, it's a really hard problem to solve. Um, it's a it's a very complex issue because it's one that they haven't been able to sort out themselves, and it will usually be a thorny issue that. Blends part of our technology with regulation, with something that may be happening on the front line that may also have reputational or partnership consequences as well. Or it could involve one of our key stakeholders、uh, as our investors and working things through with them because they may want to take the company in a certain direction, but actually our management team don't think that's the right direction. But they, you know, they own a chunk of the company, and so that again is a bit of a thorny issue that needs to be managed out. So the the hardest part of my role and the worst part are the the fact that yeah the most complex problems do land on my desk,、um, but those are the ones that I learn the most from. Going back to what we talked about near the beginning of this、uh, discussion, where you know I had that project that didn't work out at all,、um, and I thought that was a complete waste of time, but actually I learned from it, and the collaborations that I got out of it,、uh, you know, are working with me even now today. One thing I wanted to ask you about was you've obviously had tremendous success in raising money,、um, so yeah, ninety million dollars plus.、Um, what's your advice for doctorpreneurs, for medics who also want to raise money? What are the what are the key points they should be considering? I think if you've already got a startup or you've already got an idea, I think the three things that early stage investors look for are one is having a great team. Every company that's early stage goes through ups and downs. Changes its business model, changes its product, does that over and over again until something works and it becomes successful. In healthcare, because we're working in an environment with a lot of stakeholders, it's regulated. We're dealing with people's lives.、Um, it can take much more time to reach that ultimate solution, which really works, scales fast, and that people love. So the team is ultimately what people bet on. And if you're a doctorpreneur, if your background's in medicine, having a team that complements. Your expertise and your experience is really, really important. So my co-founder Marek was from a technology and commercial background. He built a company in the past, 
He studied computer science uh, at university. He predominantly have a software background and we were quite complementary. And the other members of our team were also complementary. So ensuring that your team, the, all, the four corners are covered and are as strong as possible in terms of what it takes to make your company a success, be it having someone with a financial background or an operational background or a technology background, or having people who cover all of those bases, so having someone who's maybe built a company in the past, has that track record, knows what it takes to do that. Bringing together the right team is absolutely crucial uh, to be able to raise money, but also just to build a successful startup and company. The second thing I'd say is having uh, technology or some form of IP and differentiation. Uh, technology in this world, I mean, we've covered it and you would have covered it in your previous podcast, but it is having an unprecedented impact on how every sector and every part of life works. I mean, nothing has transformed um, our, our world, our lives, as much as digital and potentially data as uh, arguably ever, but I'd, I'd say it's up there with fire, with electricity, with the wheel i mean you know digital and data is has an unbelievable impact on our world already but that's only going to increase and so you obviously using technology to see uh, how it can transform part of healthcare and building an mvp or product that can do that uh, is is important and there you want to be specific again don't try and boil, boil the ocean look for a specific problem that you understand really well um, a specific disease pathway and a solution that can solve that problem, even if it's basic. It could even be booking appointments. There are companies that digitalize and solve the booking appointments problem in healthcare that are massive, that are multinational, really revenue generating big companies. It doesn't have to be um, completely life-changing, but it can solve a key problem in healthcare that technology has a powerful role in addressing. So that's the second piece that I'd mentioned. And then the third is traction. The more traction that a company has, the more de-risked it becomes and therefore the more attractive it becomes for investors. The more traction that a company can get, also the more negotiation power that you have as a doctorpreneur or as an entrepreneur. Because when talking to investors about a potential investment, there are going to be a number of things that come up. What's the valuation? What are the terms of that investment? Those terms will work better for you and the valuation will work better for you if you have more robust traction and more demonstration that people want your product and potentially will pay for it. And that takes time to do so. And so thinking of other innovative ways or creative ways to fund a startup, be it, you know, maybe people don't get paid as much at the beginning. Maybe they're working jobs at the same time. Maybe they're grants that can be applied for. Maybe there's friends and family who can contribute. There are different ways to fund a company in its early stages. And I think the longer that you can do that for uh, and the more traction that can be built, that will have a massive impact on your negotiation power and the funding that can be secured with the terms that it can be secured with. And it's most sensitive at the early stage. The valuation of a company in its first 12 to 24 months changes much more than in the next 12 to 24 months. And so if you can postpone that, doing so as long as possible will help you to maintain and maximize your own ownership in the business but also crucially get the terms and the funding agreement that you want. Because unfortunately, there are examples where companies don't have much runway, they're low on funds, investors know it, and then they use that against you, right? They'll turn up the heat, the terms won't be as great, and as a founder, you lose a lot of controls uh, over your own company, and, and then it's, it's very difficult, almost impossible to move back from it. 
and then making a decision when you're distressed or when you're rushed is never going to be a great decision. With investors, it is a long-term partnership. It's not like hiring someone where potentially they may leave or potentially you may ask them to leave or you may promote them and things change. With an investor, once they join your company, uh, that is a very permanent relationship. So it's really important to think through who you're bringing on to your organization, to your shareholder base and your cap table. What's the biggest mistake you see early stage doctorpreneurs making? I think one challenge, particularly with the health and wellness space, and this can apply to doctorpreneurs, but I think actually they're less susceptible to it, is creating solutions to problems that don't really exist. On the app store, there are 300,000 plus apps in the health and wellness space. How many of them actually get used? A fraction, right? Probably a percentile are widespread and at scale and have sustainable business models. The rest are interesting ideas that people thought would make an impact, but then don't really get adopted and then they struggle and then are disowned and people move on to the next idea or innovation. It's really important to build solutions for problems that people are actually facing. I think doctors are in a great position because they see those problems firsthand day to day with the jobs that they're doing, with the managers and administrative staff that they're working with or with patients as well. And therefore, they're in a great position to try and solve them. What I would then say is I take that uh, one step further and say build solutions that can actually be sustainable. There are solutions and companies out there, particularly in health technology, that are doing innovative things, but ultimately they're not actually businesses. They're burning tons of cash and there isn't really a clear path to becoming profitable or sustainable in the long term. Businesses ultimately do kind of need to make some kind of money, right? Um, That's the underlying premise of businesses uh, and until more recently where there are, you know, deeply unprofitable companies which do get listed uh, and do have some success, but Over the past few years, we've seen how those valuations have been not quite heavily when companies such as Lyft, Uber, even Casper, the mattress company, they list at one price and then they get knocked massively within a period of months. Uh, And that's because they don't necessarily have sustainable models and more mature investors um, find it difficult to buy into that. And that's why coming up with solutions to real problems, but also solutions that can have real business models underlying them, that's really important. Throughout your career, throughout your life, have you had any habits or ways of approaching things that have helped you along the way? Um, I read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss um, years ago, but it was awesome. And um, I think you and I have talked about it as well before, but I think it's, it's a great book. And his premise there is Tim Ferriss, he's kind of a life coach. He comes up with all these innovative ideas. He's got one of the most read blogs and most listened to podcasts in the world. Um, And there he ran a business on four hours a week of work. And the rest of the time, he just spent it on holidays, going to Thailand, doing things that he enjoyed. And that was a very sustainable lifestyle for him and one that he really enjoyed, uh, whilst also, again, making a contribution, making an impact and making an income. Um, And he had a number of principles in there that allowed him to be much more effective and efficient with his time from delegating more rather than trying to micromanage and hold things uh, near to your chest through to really prioritizing as robustly as possible and being disciplined in doing that, through to delaying things that aren't a priority, um, or actually sometimes saying no to opportunities that aren't worth pursuing at that point in time. 
And there are a number of hacks, so to speak, and recommendations that he comes up with in that book. But that had a major impact in my own productivity. And unfortunately, in medical school, I could never quite get down to four hours a week of work. But um, it helped me to be uh, way more thoughtful with my time and to do a lot more in parallel. So being a medical student, but then also working with organizations, working with academic research projects, you know, I was even writing a book at the time, doing all those different things. Um, at the in parallel, a lot a big contributor to me being able to do that was his book and some of the lessons from it. Some of them don't apply, of course, but there is a lot to be taken away from it. And then I think the other thing I'd say is getting into a habit and a routine is really helpful because um, the less you have to think about on a day-to-day -day basis, and the more you can reserve for the really difficult, complex problems that require your full focus and attention, the better. And that's why you'll see a lot of leaders. It could be Mark Zuckerberg, it could have been Steve Jobs in the past, Barack Obama. Again, I mean, they wear the same clothes every single day. They actually eat very similar food every single day because it minimizes the number of decisions that they need to make that don't really, that aren't gonna move the needle, that aren't important and that they can essentially automate so that they can focus as much of their life on things that, that are important that will really require their attention. And so getting into a routine and picking up positive habits is, is very helpful. And it's, it's almost an analogy to automating the back office of a company, right? The more you can automate, the more you can digitalize, the more that company can focus on being innovative and creating value for customers and patients in ways that hadn't thought of before. It's a very similar analogy to how you might manage your day-to-day, -day, um, which is the more you can automate for yourself, and not have to think about it. it could be you know when you get up what you eat for breakfast what you wear when you go to for a run or your gym or you train and keep healthy what you do on the weekends how you spend your time uh, what you're reading in the evenings when you listen to podcasts what time you spend working what time you spend in meetings just how you compose that day and your week by automating it and making it as routine as possible this may sound boring but your productivity shoots up dramatically and that's also something that Tim Ferriss picks up in his book. Do you think the drive you have, do you think it's something that you were born with or do you think it's something that was developed or where, where does it come from? That's a good question. Uh, it's not one that I thought about too much. I think, I mean, my family moved from Sri Lanka during the civil war and they had to go through a lot of hardship, uh, both when they were in Sri Lanka and also when they started out in London in the UK uh, they had to uproot. My parents had to leave everything there. It was a, it was a really difficult experience, but they taught me the importance of persistence, hard work, uh, commitment, loyalty, and trying to be have high integrity in your work. And those values, that way of behaving, that way of working, I think uh, did set me up for being quite driven and ambitious uh, as I was a teenager and as I went to university I think also I mean I really love what I do and that helps a lot to be honest I was a pretty lazy person when I was younger um, even at, at, I say a teenager but when I was kind of 12 to 17 I was yeah I was pretty lazy and all over the place I mean people kind of <laughs> you look at the reports from teachers they were pretty bad uh, you know quite a few C's on there uh, people would uh, say um you know, are you sure you want to go into medicine? You know, are you sure you don't want to consider something kind of a bit less competitive? Um, 
I mean, yeah, I think if, even if you go to my primary school report, they probably didn't think I'd go to university even. So I think I was not the most disciplined and hardworking person when I was younger. But then when I went to university, I really loved what I was doing. And that helped to motivate and drive me. And I think now um, working in a company where I can make an impact and I can see that so clearly and I can, as we talked about, come into work on a Monday with an idea and it can so quickly be something that's real life out there in the world affecting people for good. Uh, that is tremendously motivating and that gives me almost all the drive that I need. If a medical student or a young doctor is listening right now, what's one thing they can do, go away and do right now that would help them? So whether that's something they should read, something they should do, an email they should send, what, what should they do right now? If there's an opportunity that you're hesitant to take, I'd recommend just taking it. Um, something that's on your mind at the moment. At medical school, I did a lot, you know, I ran into a lot of different opportunities. I pursued most of them actually, even though a lot of them didn't work out, but I don't regret any of them actually. Um, I learned from every single one and by pursuing opportunities in many different fields, even at the time, people were thinking, I mean, how's that relevant uh, to what you wanna be in the future? Because at medical school, uh, lots of my friends, you know, one of them wanted to be a cardiologist. And so everything he did was cardiology related. You know, another one, she wanted to be a gynecologist. And so everything, you know, everything had to be gynecology related. It couldn't be anything else. If it was, it was a waste of time, right? Uh, but for me, in I guess in the direction I've gone, I look back and I think, you know, those times when I was working in charities or when I was working in innovation technology, uh, or even academia, it's all come together. And actually, all of that is very useful to me on a weekly, if not even daily basis for what I do. And as an entrepreneur, you bring those skills together, especially in healthcare, you bring the academic lens where it's important to understand how to evaluate a new innovation or a new product. Uh, if you worked in a charity or a medical student society, guess what, you're working in teams all day long when you're working in a startup, so you bring that together. If you, you know, understood uh, the academic part of medicine and how to communicate with patients, use that as well because you're going to deal with patients as you're going through product development, as you're trying to understand their needs and work out what your company and organization should be doing. And then in turn, bringing that together is what entrepreneurs do every single day. And so if you are a doctorpreneur or you're someone who wants to be innovative or pioneering in the future, definitely try those more left field opportunities because medical school is where you get the time and the chance to do it. I think when you become a junior doctor, it's much harder. You've got your day-to-day -day job, uh, trying to spend a few weeks working with a startup or a couple of months working with a research unit, it's not easiest. Or even you know, a special study module working with a specialty that you otherwise wouldn't have thought of, it's difficult. Don't get caught up in planning your entire career in your first few years at medical school when you've got decades ahead of you and medicine is moving so fast, you put, you, I mean, I definitely don't know where medicine is going to be in 10 years time. So trying to say where you're going to be in 20 years time, I don't think really makes sense. Um, and that's why try that opportunity that you otherwise might be hesitant to do because at medical school, it's the best time to try and do it. And you will learn something from doing it. Ben, that was incredibly, incredibly interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to say? No, I think we've covered a lot. Um, it's been a great discussion. I mean, we have covered an awful lot. So that's, that's good. That's awesome. I just hope it helps. Um, I think, you know, when I was a medical student, there were times where, I mean, lots of times where I wasn't sure what I was going to do in the future. And that worried me. And I think if someone just told me, actually, 
it's not something to be concerned about. Don't worry. It's actually really normal. Lots of people go through it. And actually, if you weren't a medic, that's what everyone goes through. I mean, we're hiring people at Sarah who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, even 50s. They're changing careers. Uh, and so for medics to not know what they're going to do in their early 20s or 30s, 10, 20 years down the line, that's completely normal. Don't worry about it. Focus on enjoying what you do and finding what you're passionate about and explore different opportunities so you can learn as much as possible when you're in medical school because that's what medical school is about. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk and if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on the iTunes store. Thank you.